Please turn to our Christmas text this morning, uh, Matthew chapter 2, verses 1 through 15. The Gospel of Matthew chapter 2, verses 1 through 15 will be our sermon text for this morning. So what Matthew writes, After Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea during the time of King Herod, Magi from the east came to Jerusalem and asked, Where is the one who has been born King of the Jews? We saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. When King Herod heard this, he was disturbed and all Jerusalem with him. When he, had uh, when he had called together all the people's chief priests and teachers of the law, he asked them where the Messiah was to be born. In Beth Bethlehem in Judea, they replied, for this is what the prophet has written. But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For out of you will come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod called the Magi secretly, and found out from them the exact time the star had appeared. He sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and search carefully for the child. As soon as you find him, report to me, so that I too may go and worship him. After they had heard the king, they went out on their way, and the star they had seen when it rose went ahead of them until it stopped over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they were overjoyed. On coming to the house, they saw the child with his mother Mary, and they bowed down and worshipped him. Then they opened their treasures and presented him with gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And having been warned in a dream not to go back to Herod, they returned their country by another route. When they had gone, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream. Get up, he said. Take the child and his mother and escape to Egypt. Stay there until I tell you, for Herod is going to search for the child to kill him. So he got up, took the child and his mother during the night, and left for Egypt where he stayed until the death of Herod. And so was fulfilled what the Lord had said through the prophet, out of Egypt I called my son. This is God's word. Please pray with me. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We ask that you administer to our hearts by your word and by your spirit, that we might love Jesus more and have a greater sense of your presence in our lives. For this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. If you know Matthew 2, you know that I stopped the reading before things got really violent and Herod actually followed through and killed all the baby boys in Bethlehem. And there was this great mourning and weeping. And I thought that just would be really jarring to hear on Christmas morning because we're used to hearing sermons on wonder and joy and peace, not sermons on flight and violence and death. But Matthew 2 is part of the Advent narrative, perhaps the dark side of the Advent narrative. And I decided to consider this this morning because in this season of Advent, our theme has been exploring the implications of the Incarnation. Because Jesus is fully human, he gets us. He gets us, not just the happy, joyful parts of us, but also the sad and dark parts. And this season, we've considered these themes of Jesus' life. He moved into the neighborhood. He was born to a teen mom. He faced temptation, too. He experienced life as an outsider. This morning I'd like to consider this theme of the fact that Jesus fled as a refugee. Jesus gets us, even if he fled as a refugee. One of the photos of the year in Time magazine is from March 5th. It's a picture at the Odessa train station in Ukraine. George Kabura is saying goodbye to his wife Maya and their children who have boarded a train bound for Lviv on the border with Poland. It's a heartbreaking picture. 
as husband and wife bid farewell through a train window, their hands pressed against the glass. The picture puts a human face on the suffering of the war in Ukraine. By early November, the United Nations had recorded over 7.8 million refugees from Ukraine spreading across Europe. The question is, does Jesus understand what it's like to be a refugee? And Matthew tells us that he does. Because Joseph and Mary and Jesus get up in the middle of the night and they flee for their lives to Egypt, a 90-mile journey from Bethlehem. It is a sudden, urgent trip under the threat of death. They are a poor family without many belongings, so it doesn't take them too long to pack up. They pack up in the middle of the night. They leave their home, they leave their family, they leave their community, and they flee as refugees. And the question I want to consider this morning is, why does Matthew include this in his Advent narrative? I mean, each of the Gospel writers has selected from a lot of material to to shape and form their narrative of Jesus' life. No one includes this account except for Matthew. Matthew considers this one aspect of the Advent narrative to be important for us to understand the fact that Jesus fled as a refugee. So this Christmas morning, I want to consider this, that Jesus fled as a refugee. It's part of the Advent story. And to understand Matthew's point and why he included this in his gospel account, I want to ask three questions, and I think will help us appreciate this at a deeper level. Why, when, and for how long? Why did Jesus have to flee? When did Jesus have to flee, and for how long did Jesus have to flee? When, why, when, and for how long? First, let's consider this question, why? Why did Jesus have to flee? Well, the reason is, you heard it in the text, the reason why Joseph and Mary and Jesus have to flee is because Herod is going to search for Jesus and kill him. Why? Because Jesus is a threat to his power. When the Magi from the east come to Jerusalem and they come to the court of King Herod and they ask this question, where is the one born king of the Jews? That is a very dangerous question to ask a king. To go into a king's court and say, where is the king that's coming? That is a very threatening question to a king. It is a threat to especially Herod. Because Herod had developed a reputation for being an unusually violent king, even by the standards of his own day. He had... uh, it been, uh, his cruelty had become proverbial in Rome to make sure that his power was never challenged. He killed members of his own court and even his own family. At one point, his paranoia led him to murder his favorite wife and his own two sons. I mean, imagine that. Killing your own family to preserve your power. That was the kind of man Herod was. On his deathbed, he left orders that one member of each family should be executed to make sure that the whole nation would be in mourning at his death. Thankfully, those orders were never carried out. But Herod was this this cruel and this paranoid about any threat to his power. And so it's no surprise that when the Magi ask, where is the king, Herod is disturbed. This word means troubled or agitated, even terrified. Herod is agitated and terrified at the news of another king. So he plots to kill this king. He plots to kill Jesus. And he goes on to kill all the baby boys in Bethlehem, and that's why Jesus must flee. This illustrates the threat of Jesus' kingdom. Because Jesus comes into this world not just as a savior, but as a king. Which means that he challenges all existing rule and authority. If you are a king, and you hear another king is coming, that's a threat. That's a conflict, because only one king can sit on a throne at a time. And if you're a king, and you hear another king is coming, 
Those are threatening words. Jesus is a king. He comes as a king. And so he's claiming absolute authority, and he's asking for undivided allegiance. John Stott says this, If you read the Bible, you see that nobody who ever met Jesus Christ ever had a moderate reaction to him. There are only three reactions to Jesus. They either hated him and wanted to kill him, they were afraid of him and wanted to run away, or they were absolutely smitten with him and they tried to give it their whole lives to him. If Jesus Christ comes in this world as a king, it's very hard to respond to him moderately or neutrally. Perhaps this simple illustration will get this dynamic. Say, say you're driving down the road and you see Jesus by the side of the road hitchhiking. No one knows exactly what Jesus looked like in this day, but say you recognize this man by the side of the road as Jesus, and he's got his thumb out and he's hitchhiking, and you say to yourself, of course, I'm going I'm to give Jesus a ride. And so you pull over to the side of the road, and you open the back door, and you say, hop in, Jesus, I'll give you a ride. Jesus stands there and shakes his head. And you're a little taken aback that Jesus is refusing your ride, and then you say, oh, I know, Jesus, you want to ride shotgun. You want the front passenger seat, so you open the, the front passenger door and say, hey, Jesus, how about you, you sit in the front seat with me? And Jesus still shakes his head and won't get in the car. And then it dawns on you the seat that Jesus wants. He wants the driver's seat. How many of us would give Jesus the driver's seat? You know, say you're, you're driving uh, your a brand new car, your brand new Tesla, you're a little protective about it, you don't know exactly how Jesus is going to take care of this car, you know? We're happy to give Jesus a ride. No problem giving a ride, him a ride in the back seat. But the driver's seat is a whole different question. It's not easy. When Jesus comes into this world as a king, he challenges all existing rule and authority. And there is, my friends, a little King Herod in each of our hearts. There is a little King Herod that wants to rule our lives that wants to sit on the throne of our lives and is threatened by anyone or anything that challenges our authority. And, and my friends, this starts at a very young age. I, I still remember when my kids were playing and I was trying to help them with something, they would push my hand away. They would say, by me, by me. And that goes on through life. We don't want anyone to tell us what to do or how to live. The Bible identifies this mentality towards God as sin, this self-rule, this self-autonomy that resists God's rightful claim on our lives as our creator. Romans 3.11 says, No one seeks God. All have turned away. There is a little King Herod in each of our hearts that resists the rule of Jesus. And if there is a little King Herod in each of our hearts, there are King Herods in this world. Which means that if you associate with Jesus, you will be persecuted. Jesus, uh, uh, Joseph and Mary fled because they were the family of Jesus. And if you are the family of Jesus, if you are his brothers and sisters, that means when Herod targets Jesus, he will target you as well. In Matthew 5, Jesus says, Blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. He doesn't say if. He says when. If you're the family of Jesus, don't be surprised that when King Herod persecutes Jesus, he persecutes you as well. Why does Jesus have to flee? Because his kingdom is a threat to existing rule and authority. Secondly, when does Jesus flee? Well, again, Matthew tells us 
Jesus flees to Egypt when the angel of the Lord appears at Joseph in a dream and says, get up, take the child and mother and escape to Egypt. Stay there until I tell you. Jesus fled when God told him to flee. God was sovereignly protecting his son. God likewise warned the Magi in a dream to not go back to Herod. Again, God was sovereignly protecting his son. And then when Herod died, an angel of the Lord appeared again in a dream and said, get up, go back. Those trying to take the child's life are dead. Jesus fled to Egypt when God told him. And he came back to Israel when God told him. God was, in other words, sovereign over Jesus' entire time in exile in Egypt. God was sovereign in Egypt. It was not limited just to Israel, just limited to a geographic place. One of the themes in the Gospel of Matthew is Jesus' life as a fulfillment of the Old Testament. Five times in the first two chapters of Matthew are these words, and so it was fulfilled what the prophets said. And so it was fulfilled what the prophets said. In other words, even Jesus' flight was part of God's sovereign plan. Look at verse 15. And so it was fulfilled what the Lord had said through the prophet. Out of Egypt I called my son. Now, we'll talk in a moment about what that means, but here it's saying that even Jesus' flight is a part of God's sovereign plan. And when Jesus has to flee for his life to Egypt, that's not outside of God's control. It's not like God fell asleep at the wheel and now this is happening. It's not that, that God tried his best to prevent this from happening but couldn't stop it. See, sometimes that's what we think in dark chapters of our life, that God fell asleep at the wheel. That he really didn't want to allow this to happen, but, but he's just not powerful enough to stop it. But here we see that even Jesus' flight was part of God's sovereign plan. It's un, it was under his control. This is even uh, true when Israel was in exile in Egypt for 400 years. Those 400 years when Israel suffered in Egypt under slave drivers was not outside of God's sovereign control. In Genesis 15, there's some interesting verses when God is establishing his covenant with Abraham, he says to Abraham, Know for certain that for 400 years your descendants will be strangers in a country not their own, that they will be enslaved and mistreated there. But I will punish the nation they serve as slaves, and afterward they will come out with great possessions. And God says this way before the Israelites have to, to, to suffer in Egypt. God says in advance that the Israelites will be in exile in Egypt. That was not outside of God's sovereign control. My friends, what this means is that when we are God's own sons and daughters, we can be confident that our dark times of flight and exile and being refugees are not outside God's sovereign control. Everything Sad is Untrue is the title of an autobiographical novel by Daniel Nyeri, in which he tells the story of how his family had to flee from Iran in the middle of the night, pursued by secret police, threatened by murderers. Daniel's mother had become a Christian after attending a sister's wedding in England. But of course, in Iran, this was considered a state crime. She had a death threat put on her head by the Ayatollah. He was, they, they were threatened with death. Because of her Christian faith, she was forced to flee for her life in the middle of the night with her two children. Her husband decided to stay behind. And so Daniel Nair's mother and his sister uh, fled. His mother left behind her career as a doctor, 
a comfortable life of wealth, her community, she left everything behind. And they first fled to Dubai and then to a refugee camp in Italy until they were accepted for asylum in the United States. They landed in Oklahoma where they lived the life of refugees. Daniel's mom could no longer work as a doctor since her credentials were not recognized. And so she had to take on odd jobs just to make ends meet. In this autobiographical book, Daniel describes the struggles they faced as refugees in a new country. The adjustment to a new culture where simple things like potato chips seemed strange. The bullying because he was different. The social embarrassment of being the new student who didn't fit in because no one could pronounce his Iranian name. Because he smelled like pickles and garlic. Because his school lunchbox had strange foods. Because he didn't know the rules to any of the games. Daniel Nyeri describes the refugee life in all of its funny, awkward, and painful realities. But despite all the challenges, despite all the ups and downs and twists and turns, there is a theme of hope woven through the book. Daniel Nyeri writes towards the end of the book, I don't know how my mom was so unstoppable despite all the stuff that was happening. Maybe it's anticipation, hope. The anticipation that God, who that God who listens in love will one day speak justice. The hope that some final fantasy will come to pass that will make everything sad untrue. They were Christians. And that got them through this hard time. When did Jesus flee? When God directed them to. God was sovereign over every single day of Jesus' exile in Egypt. When they had to go. When they returned, God was sovereign over every moment. And God is sovereign over our times of exile. God is sovereign over every hard chapter, over every place. And what that means is there is a day coming when he will make everything sad untrue. It's what got Daniel Nyeri and his mother through the sadness and suffering. And it's what will get us through whatever sadness or suffering we have to face. So that's why. That's when. Thirdly, for how long does Jesus have to flee? Jesus' exile in Egypt does not last forever. Again, verse 15. And so it was fulfilled what the Lord had said through the prophet, out of Egypt I called my son. Jesus' exile won't last forever. God will call his son out of Egypt. Matthew here is quoting from Hosea 11, which um, Sonia read this morning. Uh, it is about how God delivers the Israelites out of their bondage in Egypt. And you say, um, what's the connection? How is this fulfilled by Jesus? What does this have to do with, with Jesus other than the fact that both Israel and Jesus uh, go down to Egypt? Did Hosea even think that he was prophesying about Jesus when he wrote these words in Hosea 11? I think to make this connection, you have to see the broader background. The broader connection I think Matthew is making, which is the background to Hosea 11, this quote, is that Matthew is presenting Jesus as the true Israelite, as the true embodiment of Israel. That's the connection I think Matthew is making, and there are clues all through the text. Consider these connections. Just as Pharaoh fears the Hebrews and orders babies, baby boys to be killed so that Moses has to be protected by his mother and hidden in a basket, so Herod also commands baby boys to be killed, and Jesus must be protected by his mother and hidden in Egypt. Just as Israel passes through the Red Sea as a kind of baptism, Jesus passes through John's baptism before he starts his ministry. 
Just as Israel is sent into the wilderness for 40 years, Jesus is sent into the wilderness to face temptation for 40 days. Just as Israel is called God's son, God says to Jesus at his baptism, this is my son with whom I am well pleased. So I don't think Matthew saw Hosea 11 as a direct prophecy, but he sees this typological pattern in Jesus' life and how it fulfills the redemptive pattern of Israel. Just as Jesus is the true and faithful son that Israel should have been, God called Israel out of Egypt. So God called Jesus out of Egypt. Just as God promised to bring Israel home to the promised land, God also would promise to bring his son back home to heaven. Jesus' exile would not last forever. In the biblical storyline, we are all exiles. In this sense, God created this world as our home, as a place of rest and shalom. But when sin and rebellion entered into this world, this world, we were cast out of our home and, and into a fallen world, so that now we're living in exile. It means that this world is not our home. And there are certainly times when life's going well, when this life feels like our home, but there are also times when we know that this world is not our home. Times of sickness and suffering remind us that this world is not our home. Violence and injustice remind us that this world is not our home. Every time we find in our hearts this longing for a better world, for a perfect world, that's our homesickness. Our homesickness kicking in for our true home. The question is, how can we be brought home? It's what we celebrate at Christmas. It's why Jesus came. Jesus came into this world. He left his home and became a refugee for our sakes. He took on our humanity. He experienced our suffering. He was crucified outside the city gates as an outsider, as the ultimate refugee. He fled as a refugee to identify with us and to save us. He fulfilled his role as a true Israelite, called out of Egypt, tempted in the wilderness, living as the perfectly obedient son so that he could be our perfect savior not dying for, our, for his sins, but for ours, so that we could be God's sons and daughters, we could be forgiven of our son and brought, son, forgiven of our sins and brought into his family, and that we might receive the promise of being brought home from our exile. There is a moment that we all experience in college. Our college students have just experienced it not too long ago. It's at that moment after you've just taken the last final of your fall semester. And you're waiting for the car to take you to the airport so you can fly home. And there is this anticipation of going home that wells up in your heart. Soon you'll be sleeping in your own bed. Soon you'll be taking a shower in your own bathroom. Soon you'll see family and be able to embrace them again. And you'll eat your favorite f foods and you'll be home again. It's the best feeling, that anticipation of going home. And if you have put your faith in Christ, the Bible says we will all experience that feeling of, that anticipation of going home. Because when we go home to heaven, it will be the best homecoming ever. It will be the best reunion forever. It was this promise and hope that carried Daniel Nyeri and his family through all the hardships of their refugee life. Listen to what he writes at the end of his book. He says, imagine you're in a refugee camp. 
And you know it'll be a year or more before anything happens. It's going to be a tough year. But for the person who thinks, at the end of this year, I'm going to be somewhere to be free, a place without secret police, free to believe whatever I want and teach my children, and you believe it'll be hard, but eventually you'll build a whole new life, he says, that's like winning the lottery. It's like saying you'll get $100 million at the end of the year. But if you're thinking every place is the same, and there will always be people who abuse you, and about how poor you'll be at first, the sadness overtakes you. It's like saying you'll get a soup and a sandwich at the end of the year, and that's it. Here's the thing. He says, you'll both have the same year at Hotel Barba, but one of you will be looking around with joy and anticipation, wondering what you can do to prepare your kids for the new world. And the other will be slumped in the courtyard, surrendered to the idea that it's all one long river of blood. What you believe about the future will change how you live in the present. That's how my mom did it. My friends, this morning, if you are a refugee or an exile or simply homesick for home, Jesus understands because he fled for his life in the middle of the night as a refugee. Jesus came into this world as a refugee to save those in exile and to bring them home. It's the good news of Christmas. The promise of home, that life in exile and darkness, life in hardship will not last forever. One day God will bring us home, and it will be the best homecoming ever, the best reunion ever, and everything sad will come untrue. What you believe about the future changes how you live in the present. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you sent Jesus into this world to take on our humanity, to experience our life so that Jesus gets us, every part of us. We thank you that Jesus became a refugee, to save refugees, to save all those in exile, to save all those who are away from home, to bring them home. I pray that this would be a, hope, a word of hope and joy for all of us. For this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.